1854. Cholera broke out in London, bringing fear and panic, death and devastation to all the people, and a new sense of urgency regarding sanitation. Because London was the largest city in the world and had grown so quickly due to industrialization and the mass migration of people out of the countryside and into the city, that as a result, it was overwhelmed by human waste. So what happened specifically in 1854? Well, a sewer was leaking right next to a public water pump. And as a result, 10,675 people died. Can you guess who was pastoring in that particular area of London in 1854? Charles Spurgeon. In fact, it was his first year of ministry in London. So this brand new pastor in the midst of a massive epidemic with literally one family after another calling him on a daily basis to the bedside of yet another loved one who was dying. Spurgeon said he was literally standing every day next to a gravesite doing a eulogy. And at first Spurgeon threw himself into the work with youthful vigor doing daily visitations of the sick. But soon he said, I became weary in body and sick in heart. Until one afternoon, he was walking home from yet another funeral when he saw this large sign posted in a shoemaker's store window. And apparently, it wasn't an advertisement or a trade announcement, but instead it was Psalm 91, posted in big, bold handwriting saying, because you have made the Lord your refuge and because you have made the Most High your habitation, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling place. Now, here's the glory of the Word of God, because Spurgeon said those words, Psalm 91, had an immediate effect on him. Faith took hold of those words and made them his own, to such an extent that he found himself refreshed and secure. And he went on visiting those who were dying with a great calm and a peaceful spirit. In our passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapters 27 and 28, we're going to see a tale of two kings. And more specifically, a tale of two ways to live, two ways to respond to the word of God. Because both kings endure difficulties. One king is called to live in exile and yet listens to the word of God and fulfills God's command to secure the promised land. Whereas the other king faces a terrifying battle. But rather than embracing God's word, he looks for a quick fix, seeking out voices that must not be listened to. As Proverbs 16.25 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of destruction. So the question we're going to be forced to ask is whose voice are you seeking and whose word are you listening to? So are you seeking voices that only say what you want to hear? Things that you already agree with and are already saying to yourself? If if that's so, then our text is going to warn you to listen to King Jesus, who's the only one who brings a message of salvation that leads to clarity, courage, and conviction in order to do the things that the Lord is calling you to do. These chapters are going to encourage us to fight the good fight of faith, to keep seeking the Lord, but to be seeking the Lord in his word so that it might lead us, guide us, and direct us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So a tale of two kings. 
both calling us to be a people who wholeheartedly seek the Lord in his word. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27, page 249, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to grab my outline from the bulletin, have it right there in the Bible with you. We're literally looking at two kings. It's almost going to feel like two sermons this morning as we look at King David and then we look at King Saul. The contrast is incredible. And if you remember, David's been on the run from Saul since all the way back in chapter 18. Saul's been trying to kill him the entire time. So David makes a pretty radical decision here in chapter 27. If you will, look at verse 1. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. Now, can you even believe it that this is a David's plan to go live with the Philistines? But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, David's already passed up two opportunities to kill Saul just to show that he's not a threat to him. And yet Saul keeps dogging him at every step. And at this stage, David's got two wives and he's got 600 men along with all of their wives and all of their kids, their households. So he easily has something like 1,000 people, maybe 1,500, possibly 2,000. So obviously David can't keep a group with that size on the run. So what's his option? Well, verse 1 tells us, David says, there's nothing better for me than to escape to the Philistines. So he's forced to live among his enemies in exile, but he embraces it to such an extent that he'll use it as an opportunity to fulfill God's commands. And David's plan is obviously successful. Verse 4 says, when Saul heard that David fled to Gath, he no longer pursued him, which means that Saul gave, gave up, which gives us confidence that surely God's in this. Now, I know that the text doesn't say that David called for the ephod or that he sought the Lord or that he even heard a word from God. But David's God's anointed king. The spirit is upon him and he's walking faithfully with God, not perfectly, but consistently. So what we're being shown here is that David embraces what God has for him, including living among his enemies in exile. And David's not only successful in getting Saul off of his back, but in setting up things with Achish, the king of Gath. That's B, David's place. Look at verse 5. And David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. 
And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, if you remember, this is the second time David's had a run-in with this guy. First time was back in chapter 21, and it didn't go so well. David ended up acting like a madman, scratching doors with his fingernails and saliva running down his beard. But things are obviously different here. This time, David's an infamous outlaw, meaning everyone knows that he's on the run and that he's a would-be usurper to the throne who is so feared by King Saul that he repeatedly sends thousands of men into the wilderness to track him down and to kill him. So Achish assumes that David is switching sides, that he's deserting Israel, a place he's clearly not wanted, and is looking for a new place to lay his head. So really all Achish is doing is acting consistent with that timeless truth that the enemy of my enemy is surely my friend. Or in this case, the enemy of Saul is surely a friend to Achish. And of course, David doesn't fill in the missing pieces there. Instead, he just lets Achish think whatever Achish wants to think, meaning he doesn't disabuse him of his wrong thinking, but lets him reach his own conclusions. As we'll see, that will be a consistent pattern of David, who I would argue is being shrewd. In addition, he doesn't let Achish put him wherever he wants. But under this cloak of humility, he asks to live in a country town. And of course, with that reasoning, Achish is happy to provide David with Ziklag. Why does David do that? Well, I would suggest David's being faithful to God's word. So similar to the Exodus, when Pharaoh gave the Israelites Goshen so they could do their own thing and worship their own God, David's embracing his exile status and he's being faithful to God's command to not assimilate with the Philistines and to not worship their false gods. So David's not compromising with the Philistines. In fact, there's no hint of that here. Why is that? Well, because he's listening to God's voice. And he's obeying God's word as a true law-keeping faithful king, which is confirmed by David's plan being successful. Verse 6 says, that day Achish gave David Ziklag and belonged to Judah even to this day. So we've seen David's plan and we've seen David's place. Now let's look at see David's practice. Verse 8 says, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. Those are all locations, not people. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom. All the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking 
Notice, thinking, not knowing, but thinking he had made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Now it's helpful to know Ziklag was 25 miles southwest of Gath, which is really the perfect location because it was far enough away from Saul to not be found, and it was far enough away from Achish to be freed up to raid the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. So David isn't just using his exile time to relax, kick back, and watch a football game. That's not what he's doing. Instead, he's fulfilling God's promise to give Israel the land of Canaan, which was declared all the way back in Genesis 17, verse 8, restated in Exodus 3, verse 17, and then reiterated again in Numbers 33, verse 50. In fact, God said, I will give you the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, everybody including the Mosquito Bites, right? He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey and commanded them to take it, to destroy all the enemies and to take for their very own the promised land. And yet Joshua 13 tells us that Israel failed to conquer it. In fact, God says to Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains so much of the land still to possess. And then he lists the Philistines and the Geshurites. So what is David doing? He's showing himself to be the new Joshua, fulfilling God's word from Joshua chapter 1, where God said, be strong and courageous, and be careful to do according to all that I command in my word, for this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success, which means David is listening to God's voice doing God's will, and fulfilling God's word. Now, how is he doing that? By utterly destroying the inhabitants who live in Canaan, every man, woman, and child, and plundering all of their property. Now, I understand. That might sound brutal to you. Might even sound inappropriate to you. But it's a glorious picture of how God has promised to provide and to protect his people by giving them a home, the promised land. So a place free from enemies and a place that is described as flowing with milk and honey, a glorious place, which is clearly a picture and a pointer to the promise of heaven, a place with abundant protection and provision whose architect and builder is God. So what we see is David listening to the Lord. Not just hearing God's word, but obeying God's word and fulfilling God's word. Which has to be seen in contrast to Saul. Look at chapter 27, verse 8. Notice how it includes the Amalekites. Now remember back in chapter 15 where God commanded Saul to go and strike the Amalekites, utterly destroying them, not leaving a single man, woman, or child alive. But of course, what happened? Saul didn't listen, decided on his own to spare King Agag. So rather than listening to God's voice and doing God's will, he rejected God's word. And as a result, God rejected him from being king. One last thing in chapter 27. 
you have to see how shrewd David is being. Because from one point of view, or from the point of view of the Israelites, David's conquering Canaanite cities, which they love because he's protecting them from their enemies. And according to chapter 30, which we'll see next week, he's sharing all of the spoils with his fellow Israelites. So even in the midst of exile, David is protecting and he's providing for God's people. And yet, at the same time, he's also taking some of the spoil and he's giving it to Achish and telling him where he's raiding, not who he's raiding. So he gives them locations, but by that, Achish assumes David is killing fellow Israelites, which is why Achish says, verse 12, surely David is making himself an utter stench to his people, but he's not. Instead, he's doing the exact opposite. And there's not a single man, woman, or child left alive to clarify Achish's wrong thinking and assumptions. So David has it both ways. The Israelites love him, and Achish loves him. So his strategy is ingenious. In fact, it's so successful that Achish wants David to fight alongside him in the upcoming battle against the Israelites. Which brings us to D, David's problem. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Literally, that means I will put my head in your hands for life. Now, do you recognize the problem? Because Achish wants David to fight against the Israelites. So clearly a difficult situation. Because it appears David is between a rock and a hard place. So either he gives up his facade and the Philistines kill him, or he fights with the Philistines and he's forced to kill the Israelites. Either way, it's not good. So how does David respond? Don't you love verse 2? Very well, Achish. You will soon see what your servant can do. What does that mean? (laughs) It doesn't mean anything, right? David flies high. So his statement could be taken one of two ways. Either he'll fight with Achish against the Israelites, or more likely, I would suggest, David's going to destroy the Philistines, killing as many as possible. Do you see how shrewd he's being? Boy, when I read that, and I understand how shrewd David is being to Achish, it immediately reminds me of the Lord Jesus. And the way that he spoke with the Pharisees. I mean, they were constantly trying to force him to choose a side. And Jesus would always respond shrewdly. Often he would say something in a way where they left pondering. (laughs) What does he mean between that? It could be taken two different ways. But David doesn't just point forward to Jesus and his ability to be shrewd with his enemies. He also points to Christ and his willingness to go into exile and to live among his enemies. I mean, Jesus willingly left his father's throne above 
so that he could be born a babe in a manger. And he willingly became like us in all things, completely embracing his exile status and living among his enemies, not just for 16 months, but for 33 years. And we're certainly his enemies. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And yet we despised him and we rejected him. So Jesus is the one true king who embraced his exile and he embraced it for those who nailed him to the cross. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And what made Jesus an adequate substitute for our sin? Well, how about the fact that he was a faithful law keeper who resisted the sinful temptation of assimilating to this world? So really the fulfillment of the man in Psalm 1 and in Joshua 1, who was strong and courageous, the book of the law never departed from Jesus' mouth. He meditated on it day and night, and he was careful to do according to all that was written in it. Jesus is the ultimate law keeper, fulfilling every requirement, both in his perfect obedience, a life without sin, and in his willingness to be punished for our disobedience, becoming a curse in our place. He bore our sorrow, carried our shame, and he was crucified, his body cursed as he hung on a tree. By doing so, he's the one who ultimately leads us to the promised land of heaven, where we will one day receive all the promises of God, not just for a short time, but for all eternity. And how did he do that? By dealing shrewdly with the devil. Don't you see these verses show Achish who thinks David will be his servant forever because he becomes odious to God's people. But while he's making that assumption, David's plundering the enemy, conquering the wicked, defeating strongholds, and he's taking territory. Well, Jesus did the same thing to the devil who was convinced he was winning because Jesus became odious to the people who yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Yet at the same time, Jesus was about his father's business, plundering the devil's house, conquering his enemy, defeating strongholds, and taking territory. Jesus actually crushed the devil's head through his death, burial, and resurrection, which is the ultimate victory in the way that Christ secured the promised land for all eternity. David points forward to the Lord Jesus, the one true king who listened to God's voice, obeyed God's will, and perfectly fulfilled God's promises, even in the midst of being in exile. But as I said in my introduction, our passage this morning is a tale of two kings and really two ways to respond to the word of God. So the first king, David, fulfills God's word despite the difficulty and so clearly points forward to the Lord Jesus. But the second king, as we'll see, is going to reject God's word and therefore receive God's judgment. Let's walk through the details, starting in chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Are you feeling the significant shift that we're seeing? It's almost like you get a story of David, right? Almost like a comic strip situation. And then it's like, oh, more on that later. Over here, let's look at Saul. There's a dramatic shift that takes place in verse 3. We were just talking about Achish recruiting David to go to war against the Israelites when suddenly we're talking about Saul who's already at war with the Philistines. Why the shift? Well, the author is purposely contrasting David and Saul. And we know that not only because of the content, but because of the sequence. So chapters 27 to 31 are not in chronological order, but instead are bouncing back and forth between these two kings. We'll pick up the story about David in chapter 29 next week and how he navigates the whole situation. But here the author wants us to see the one king who is so clearly fulfilling God's word, David, and the other king is so clearly rejecting God's word. So what happens? Verses 3 to 6, we're given background information, including the fact that Samuel's dead. Now Samuel's been dead for quite a while. We know Samuel's dead. We saw that several chapters ago. Why would you bring that up? Well, it's going to be important here in just a second. And we also are told that Saul has enforced God's command to put mediums and necromancers out of the land, which obviously includes folks who raise people from the dead in order to speak with them. That'll be important in just a second. All of that is necessary. But what's most important is the fact that the Philistines set up camp in Shunem and are positioned to attack Israel. So verse 5 tells us that when Saul saw the army, he was afraid and his heart trembled. Saul is terrified, which, by the way, is the opposite of God's command in Joshua 1 to be strong and courageous. So what does Saul do? Well, at first glance, he does what you would want him to do, right? Verse 6 says, So Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or Urim or by prophets. Now, what you need to understand here is that the author is giving us a play on words. Because Saul's name literally means the asked for one. And the verb in verse 6 is a version of Saul's name. So a literal reading of verse 6 would be the asked for one, asked of the Lord, or Saul, Sauled, the Lord. Which is radically different than the language, the verbs in Deuteronomy 4.29, which says, seek the Lord, and you will find him if you seek for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Or... Isaiah 55, 6, that says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord who will abundantly pardon. Saul is not doing that kind of seeking. Instead, Saul sauled the Lord. And of course, when you pursue God like that for selfish reasons, the Lord did not respond. Notice how he does not respond by either dreams or Urim or prophets. So either by prophets, priests, or kings. So not by prophets because they're with David. Not by priests because if you remember, Saul killed all of the priests at Nob. And not by dreams because that's what kings have. And Saul's not the one true king. 
So what I'm saying is Saul did not seek the Lord with all of his heart, but instead sought the Lord for his own personal gain. Again, verse 5, he saw the army of the Philistines and he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So Saul is a desperate man in a desperate situation and he's desperate for God to tell him what to do. So he seeks the Lord just to get him out of his current mess. So not because he's repenting and not because he's truly seeking the Lord. So not to hear God's word or obey God's word or fulfill God's word. And that is so evident and so obvious because of what Saul does next. Look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now, this seek and this inquire are the exact same words used in Deuteronomy 4.29 and Isaiah 55.6. So rather than seeking the Lord, Saul's seeking a medium. And rather than inquiring of God, Saul's inquiring of a witch. And yet, even though God commands in Deuteronomy 18 that there shall not be found in you anyone who practices divination or tells fortune or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So even though that's God's clear command, Saul's servants know exactly where to find one. Isn't that interesting? Verse 7, and his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, which means he took off his kingly robe, symbolic of what's taking place, and he put on other garments, and he went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. Isn't that ironic? She's talking to Saul. Surely you know what Saul has done. Saul does know what Saul has done. How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the Lord and yet is from the land and yet is seeking one. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, notice this, by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing, which is utter blasphemy. Because Saul is commanding her to do something that is totally disobedient to God's word. Do you know what the punishment is for doing this? Stoned to death. And yet here is Saul saying, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He has no right. And he has no reason to promise that no punishment shall come upon this woman. Because both Saul and the medium are so clearly rejecting God's word. Nevertheless, verse 11, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Samuel's been dead. Long time. Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Probably because she's a charlatan and had never before actually brought someone up from the dead. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. Again, he does it again. Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. So what does he do? He bowed with his face to the ground 
and he paid homage. That's not what you do. That's not how to respond to a prophet, whether they're dead or alive. Instead, that's how you should respond to God alone. But Saul doesn't care. He'll bow down to anyone if it means that he'll get what he needs. Case in point, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered. Notice how selfish. Notice how self-consumed he is. He says, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now, if you have any inclination whatsoever to feel badly for Saul, I hope that's completely gone. Saul is a wicked man who's rejected God's word, blasphemed God's name, and deserves God's judgment, which is the exact message that he receives from Samuel. Number two, B, Saul receives God's judgment. Look at verse 16. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Why did he give it to your neighbor David? Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me, meaning you shall surely die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. What exactly is Samuel saying? Well, he's declaring that this is the fulfillment of what was declared to Saul all the way back in chapter 15. Saul clearly disobeyed God's word by not destroying the Malachites. So Samuel, when he was alive, said to him, chapter 15, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected, not listened, not obeyed, rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. All of that is coming true. Right here, right now. So Samuel is is doing, all Samuel is doing is filling in the picture that Saul and his sons are going to die tomorrow in battle against the Philistines, which happens in chapter 31. That's number one, Samuel's condemnation. What happens as a result? What we see next, number two, Saul's total collapse. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground. That's an interesting description, isn't it? Notice how clear it is. Saul fell at once full length on the ground. Fully spread out on the ground. What does that make you think of? Oh, that's Genesis 3. On your belly you shall go. And thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. 
And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. I want you to see two things here before we go to application. The first is how these details bookend Saul's life. We were introduced to Saul all the way back in chapter 9, where he and his servant ended up at Samuel's house, where Samuel killed a fatted calf and they enjoyed a meal in the house of the prophet. But now Saul's with another servant enjoying another meal, but it's in the house of a medium. Do you understand? This highlights the other downfall of his life. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death and destruction. Why is that? Because he's disobeying God's voice and he's rejecting God's word. Number two, notice how this chapter ends. Because Saul listens to the voice of the woman. And what does the voice of the woman do? She offers him Food which he takes and he eats in the company of the demonic. This is an allusion back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve who dined with the devil. So, yes, Saul has had many failures, but this is his great failure because just like Adam and Eve dined with the devil, Saul's having a fellowship meal with the demonic. What should we do with all of this? Well, I'd appeal to you that 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 28 has everything to do with how you respond to the word of God. So remember the question I asked at the introduction. Whose voice are you seeking? And whose word are you listening to? Because what we've seen is a tale of two kings and a tale of two ways to live, two ways to respond to the word of God. Because what exactly is Saul doing? He's seeking anyone and everyone who will alleviate his current dilemma. So he's happy to run to the Lord, but only if God can fix his immediate problems. And if God can't fix his immediate problems, then he's happy to run to anyone else, including a witch who calls up people from the dead. It has nothing to do with hearing God's voice, obeying God's word, or living for God's glory. But instead, it has everything to do with Saul getting what he wants and what he needs right now. Well, then let me ask you, why are you here this morning? Meaning, if you could ask God for anything, what would you like him to do for you? If your honest answer is for life to get easier, or for the load to get lighter, or for him to help you to be the best you that you can possibly be for your own selfish benefit, 
then I'm here to tell you and to warn you, you're seeking the Lord for all the wrong reasons. Jesus didn't live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, crush the devil's head, and rise victorious from the grave so people can live a self-consumed life here on earth. He came so that he would die so that your soul could be saved for eternity. That's why Matthew 121 says, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Oh, dear unbeliever, the Bible is so clear. Deuteronomy 4.29 says that if you seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, you will find him. But you have to seek him for the right reasons. That's why Isaiah 55.6 says, let the wicked forsake his way and then righteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord who will abundantly pardon. Pardon for what? Pardon for sin. Pardon for your unrighteous thoughts. Pardon for your wicked ways. Oh, I plead with you this morning, seek the Lord. But seek the Lord with a humble, broken, and contrite heart. And with a deep desire to know the Lord in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who can forgive you of your sin. And empower you by the gift of the Spirit to live for his glory. But I promise you that if you seek the Lord like that, you will find him. You'll find the Lord Jesus with open arms, standing ready to save, ready to forgive you of your sins, and ready to secure your soul for all eternity. He stands ready to save. But you have to seek him with a broken and contrite heart and a desire to own your sins and to know him in a saving way with a commitment to live for his glory, which is the opposite of seeking him to get something for the here and now. Oh, I just want my life to be easier. Lord, can you help me do what I want to do? Oh, that's radically different than seeking the Lord in a saving way so that you might be forgiven of your sin and have the hope of eternal life. Oh, I plead with you, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with a broken and contrite heart that you might be saved and your soul secure for all eternity. And to you, dear believer, the question is the same. To whose voice are you listening? Oh, I pray that you'd see the main message of our passage this morning, that we'd be a people who are constantly and consistently listening to God's word, which will always point us to faith in the Lord Jesus, will always point us to the gift of the Spirit, so that we might be those who are enabled to obey God's word. But that can only happen if we know God's word. So we must seek the Lord in his word. And not just know God's word, but trust God's word. Lean into God's word so that we might obey God's word. Which is radically different than leaning on our own understanding. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. How does he make our paths straight? He makes our paths straight through his word. And as a result, it's people who are strong and courageous, who embrace our exile status, deal shrewdly with our enemies, and never stray from our kingdom objectives. Again, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that purpose you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And as a result, trusting his word, living according to his word, you will be strong. And you will be courageous, empowered by God's grace, and living for God's glory. You know, that's what happened to Charles Spurgeon. He was leaning on his own understanding, and he was struggling. First year of ministry, tempted to give up. This is too hard. I can't go on. And then he heard Psalm 91. And it had an immediate effect on him. He said, and I quote, faith took hold of those words and made them my own. And I found myself refreshed and I found myself secure and empowered to embrace his exile status and to faithfully minister the gospel to those who were dying. Oh, may the same be true of us, that we would be a people who seek the Lord in his word, embrace our exile status, and do whatever the Lord is calling us to do, that we would walk faithfully according to his word, instructed and guided, and empowered by his spirit. Oh, may we seek the Lord in his word. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would know that the word of God will point us straight to the Lord Jesus, that we can be forgiven of our sin, that we can have the hope of eternal life. And the word is so clear that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of destruction and the way of death. Lord, help us to be a people who lean not on our own understanding. Help us to be a people who are more humble than thinking our thinking is right and this is the best way to go. Instead, I pray that we would be humble, broken and contrite, and we would seek the Lord in his word believing in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, empowered by the Spirit to obey God's word, to be those who are strong and courageous, doing the will of God. Lord, give us grace to seek the Lord in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.